Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome lovers of product. Today I'm here with Nick Parikh, who's a design strategist and also the author of The Future of Extraordinary Design. So Nick, welcome. Why don't we kick this off by uh, getting a little overview of your background? Sure. Firstly, thank you for having me. And uh, I'm really excited to talk about design and what it can do for all of us. So I started my career like 18 years back in the world of advertising. And uh, I worked in advertising for almost eight to 10 years. And in between that, I had my small design studio. And I had an opportunity to work with some of the big uh, global advertising agencies like Ogilvy and all. And post that, I, I decided to study service design, kind of also known as business design. And post that, I, I jumped into the world of design where I've been working as a design strategist for companies like TopTech, which was a startup, uh, Delta Airlines, Chase Bank, Samsung Next, and now currently I'm at Charles Schwab. So yeah, that's that's basically my short journey. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So let's jump into some of the places you've worked. Tell me about your experiences. Do you want to start with Delta and Chase? Absolutely. So uh, Delta actually started as a project when I went to SCAD, and it later on um, we were part of the program, or it, it was a design sprint. The idea was to actually think of a customer journey in 2027. And we started this project in 2017, so almost uh, we were thinking 10 years out. The idea was not just to uh, bring out some things that we think could relate to the future or something. We had to make it as real as possible. And what happens is uh, when you're thinking far out ideas and, and the scale that Delta would have to think at, and because these are not just services, they also required like, they also had involvement of like airports, aircraft. So they take a while and for them, it was the right time to do it. And uh, we ended up uh, coming up with some great ideas. And these ideas were not just uh, great ideas on a paper or a sketch, but they actually made sense in terms of business perspective. We had a business model canvas going on. We had like what the benefit for Delta is. I think most of the time when we start looking into the future and start practically throwing ideas at the clients or, you know, within a company, I think a lot of people think this is going to be cool, but it's not just about a cool idea. This is about how practical it is for Delta to shift their entire business model to make your idea work. What problems are we solving? And and I, I've been asked this question, how do you think of the future? How do we think of, you know, projects which are five years out? And I was like, Nobody's seen the future and people cannot ever claim that they've seen it. I think it's just about taking these big problems and trying to solve them innovatively. Every product to me out there is kind of something that has solved a big problem out there. Moving to Chase, I was hired for a team which was more about working on branch of the future. I was working at Chase from 18 to 19 And we were thinking of branch of the future. So what the branches will look and feel like in 2023. And 
there were a lot of things, but one of our biggest thing was it was a very service driven, uh, design driven project. So we were trying to get an input from everyone, from stakeholders, from Chase employees, from customers, from potential customers to analogous visits to also understanding the market trends, how the space design in general has changed. So we and we also worked with CCA students to kind of get their perspective. Since you know, I'm I'm not 15, 18. I can't think um, like that. I can't. Students can really bring in a very fresh perspective. That sometimes I think as professionals you kind of lose that. And uh, they brought in a brilliant perspective. And when we gelled all these ideas, then that's when we started thinking what the branch of the future will not just what it, what it will look like, but also what it will feel like. What are the things that people are going to do? What are the services they're going to interact with? And then another project I was involved at Chase, which was uh, fascinating, which was rethinking mortgage experience. So, hey, before we jump into the mortgage experience, so what did what does the branch of the future look like? So branch of the future is based a lot on empathy. It's based a lot on, it's not just about going and touching all the coolest gadgets and things in the world, but branch of the future is a very carefully crafted educational space because since 1920s, the formats of the banks of branches have not changed. When branches and banks were first introduced, it was all about dropping a check, depositing a check, collecting cash, and all those very transactional things. And what happened is in last 80 to 90 years, we did not have to think about what could it be. But now, since everything is done online, there is a huge opportunity for banks, and especially for Chase, which has 5,000 branches, and they mean something. So our idea was that today, people want a step two of what financial world is they want to understand. They no longer want to just put their dollars in and let banks do the stuff. They want to be a part of it. They want to be partners with the bank. So the the idea was, and I can't get into the detail of it, but the idea is that how can we change that and bring a more educational thing? How can we bring a community feeling? How can we create a branch for each community rather than, how can we decentralize rather than being so centralized, right? So that was something that we were thinking of. Yeah, so, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, right? More developing more of a sense of community and more of an empathy for the community they're based into as opposed to, you know, a cookie cutter chase everywhere in the country, that kind of thing. Absolutely. And I think there are in this space, there are others who have done some brilliant things like Capital One with their coffee shops. I'm sure you know about this. And they've actually taken banking on another level where most of us today actually put... Um, banking as the first thing and all the services as a secondary capital one what they said is this is a coffee shop you come and if you want to just open a credit card or get a mortgage we are just here to chit chat and have a conversation with you making it less formal making it more like easygoing conversation rather than this big difficult conversation the other part is uh, umqua bank uh, umqua bank is, is in seattle i was there for my research And one of the things actually what happened at Umqua was what they do is they actually, it's very interesting model. So they have these little cards, right? They have these cards that people write something and put it on the board. And these are ideas then how they want the branch to be used in the evening because they realized that they were in the main downtown, the space is very less and their customers are more like small businesses. So they said, I want to promote my cookies in the evening. 
So they actually call all their customers. The owner of the cookie shop will come, and she will actually get everyone free cookie, and the banks will actually provide everyone with free tea and coffee, and they are not charged for the space. Now that's a very very thoughtful way of doing it. Actually, one day I went. It was a cookie class. The next day, actually, it was a pet get together. Then there was a yoga class, and this is all free. So I think um, this is where we were thinking of building it, making it community based, not just the design aspect of it, but the service aspect of it, because it just creates such a strong bonding, right? You don't want to come across as a we are a giant bank, we are here to take over things. You want to come across as humble. Hey, it is part of Chase. We're not going to deny that, but Chase is not this centralized bank. We are here to just talk to you. Talk to me like I'm your friend. I'm not a part of the Chase platform. I'm here to talk to you as one-on-one, build a relationship. Yeah, I, I like that. I think there's a lot of lessons that can be learned from a lot of different brands and how they can take <laughs> assets they have and better utilize them. You know, to create that sense of community, that sense of well-being. That, yeah. that frankly, that they then and I don't want to sound this to be too capitalistic, but they can monetize that. Those relationships have value. And look at Umqua. They actually did. They are giving their space in the evening for free, but they said that they've not seen. And I cannot. And this is something that we got internally. I cannot put the exact numbers to it, but they did not see an account closure in two years. And that, to me, is just fascinating. That you've not seen account closures. Every bank would see some sort of account closures. At some point, right? People yeah. are moving. People are want to move to a better bank. Someone is offering a better credit card and things like that. They've not seen a single account closure in that neighborhood. And yeah, that's, that's, that's a perfect example of monetizing that experience. And and you're not doing it in a, an ill way, right? You're you're thinking about it and saying we're going to give more value to our customers, and by doing so, we think that means they're going to stay with us, mm-hmm. and it's proven to be true. Absolutely. There is a huge business value to it. So, yeah, that's what we were thinking on Branch of the Future. And uh, when it came to mortgage experience, I was pulled into that team to rethink mortgage experience because there's this whole notion that when I'm trying to buy my dream home, uh, this was home mortgage here, when I'm trying to buy my dream home, I fill up all the paperwork and somewhere down the line, it goes to a bank. Now, it can go to a bank physically or it can go through some platform or some email that the banks have sent you, Right. And then you have absolutely no transparency of what happens on the other end. And you kind of lose touch. And then one fine day, you just get this very cold-hearted letter saying that, unfortunately, your credit score does not fit our so-and-so protocol. And you you just feel like, man, you just crushed all my dreams for no reason. Like, so in this case, it's not about banks don't feel like they are partners, but they feel like more like this you know, the big giant corporation who's going to tell you what you should own and what you shouldn't. That is not the case. We created an online platform where people can submit and you can have a chat and the banks will tell you, hey, listen, seems like you have $3,000 credit card debt and you have 20000 sitting in your bank. Do you think you can just clear your credit card so that there's a better credit score and then we should apply? You know, like they actually help you find solutions and they make you a partner. And even if you're rejected, they don't give up on you. Your chat platform is there always. And that means that they can keep having this conversation and they can keep preparing you for round number two. You know, and that should be your final round. So we wanted to change that whole outlook of people look at a mortgage. 
And one of the crazy ideas actually I had at that time was, I was like, why don't we start? Why don't we help them as a surprise when they finish the mortgage application with us and they're successful, we will help you move. We will get the movers to help you move. And I got a backlash at the start for even saying this to some of our business partners. And I was like, think about the value. One of the biggest things that companies today struggle with is keeping that relation, right? Once that loan application is over, your relationship is gone. It's over, right? I'm not going to refinance my place every three months or I'm not going to buy another place every three months. So how do you build that relation? How do you end on a great note? And the great note is we tie up with movers and packers at a really reasonable rate. You don't pay for it. We've already made it part of the mortgage rate. And then we provide you that great experience in the end. So it's a great way of saying goodbye and also hello to the next relationship. Yeah, I love that. So it's interesting. I mean, you're, you're working for places like Delta and Chase, which we think of as big behemoth companies, right? We don't think of them as having the empathy with the, the little guy, so to speak. And, and these programs are all about developing that sense of community and that empathy. When we were first working there, talk to me about the process of evangelizing these ideas of being more design-centric, more product-led, more empathetic at these large companies. Was it a struggle? Was it easy? So... I'm not going to say that it was very easy and neither it was a lot of struggle. I think, you know, just like um, I play chess, it's one of my passions. And I think one of the things that we have to look at is first, you have to understand the arena of the game, right? If you jump right into the game, you have to understand which horses where, where the knight is, where the uh, rooks are, right? So it's just about understanding which team is where and how political it is and Some people are, of course, going to be very open because they want to see that change. And sometimes you may get this pushback saying that that's not Chase brand. We're not going to deal with movers here. But then the thing is, the idea is that try to understand who you need to please and how you need to drift this idea because change is hard. And I'm not going to blame anyone saying that there are people who are difficult. If I had a business and a service designer came and told me that you have to change your entire model because all your model is wrong. I will take a pushback. I'll be like, hello, I've made a lot of money on this model. You know, don't tell me I'm wrong. The thing is, I think it's the way we we would craft it. We would slowly embed it. We would get everyone excited. And one of the things that I've learned is co-create. Don't ever present to anyone. Show them this is a draft and you would love their input on it, right? Because it's a, it has to be communication is always two ways. If I start going and start showing off my presentation, then they'll be like, okay, this guy is just doing stuff in a bubble and just coming and presenting it. The other thing that I think we normally do is what I love doing is there's this map that I've created. It talks about pity, sympathy, empathy, and compassion, right? There's this whole notion that companies always understood a pity, right? Like if I call a credit card company and say, I missed my payment, they'll be like, I acknowledge, I understand your suffering. I understand you probably did not get paid on time, but There's nothing I can do, you know, it's beyond my control. Then the thing is, sympathy is when they put themselves in your shoe, like they'll be like, I understand I've been there, you know, I've also missed credit card payments, but there's nothing I can do. And that's when you taken a step forward, then comes the empathy, which is the phase we are in right now, which is, I feel your suffering, but the policies don't allow me to remove the fees. 
And now I think in few years, I would love for the industry to move to the next one. And it's already happening. And I love to share some examples. It's a compassion, right? I want to help you from your, you know, I will find a way to help you remove that credit card charge because you missed your payment. Because frankly, nobody on this planet wants to miss their payment. That's the truth of it. Everybody wants to collect money and try and make it on. When they've not been able to pay, 99% of the times I always say that there is some situation there. Either they've forgotten or either they've missed the payment or they've not, they've had some cash flow issues. So how can we be empathy? And I think there are companies who are doing out of this world ideas to bring that empathy into the process. I like that. I, I mean, I, I think, you know, it, it strengthens the company's brand and makes them feel more human and it gives them an opportunity to establish a longer term relationship too, where it doesn't just feel like, you know, you're paying for a service, but you're really building a relationship with a company then that cares about you as a, as a human. Mm-hmm. And I think by doing the right thing, it's going to financially work out too, right? It's- mm-hmm. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit more about your experiences at Samsung, and then we can jump into your book. Samsung was uh, phenomenal. I think I will probably the best experience I've had uh, till date was Samsung. I firstly got to work with some amazing people out there. So Samsung Next is a venture firm. It is where uh, Samsung would invest in all the software companies they think are the future. And of course, it's more like a venture firm. So think of it as Google X and Google uh, Ventures coming together. So we would uh, acquire the company, but we would also be working with them like consultants to help them develop. I met some of the finest founders and they are some of the most uh, clever people I believe in the industry. I worked on a couple of projects. One is uh, I was part of eCoco, which is also called as Disco now, B-I-S dot C-O. It is it yeah. is a distributed uh, computing. Sorry, go on. You were saying something? No, I was just saying, yeah, I'm familiar. That's cool. Yeah. So the founder of it is Avi Barlia. He's one of the co-founders. And he's the same guy who was part of the FaceTime technology. He's the same guy who's also been part of the NASA group. He's a great scientist, extremely charismatic leader. And uh, one of the things that we, what they do is they basically take computing and not making it centralized, trying to decentralize computing. So tomorrow, if I want some computing power, right, like I'm rendering some animations and I want computing power, I don't have to necessarily go to Amazon servers or Google Cloud. I can use all the Android devices around me to compute. And these people will just get paid like you get paid for Uber or Airbnb. The only difference is you don't have to do any work. You don't have to like go to your phone, tap something, just download the app. We find the optimal time to run some computing on your device. We do not look at your data. And then when the time comes, you just get paid every month. We were running this pilot program in India and Australia. It was great, Israel, of course. And uh, yeah, fantastic company, absolutely brilliant. So I was part of it. I worked on um, changing the whole uh, design strategy, changing the way we look at it, because one of the things that we were doing is we were actually paying these people. That was the model. We were paying them, like every time we use it, we calculate a certain uh, price per hour and we pay you for it. That's something I wanted to stop because... In a service model, you never pay people because I think that's the end of a relationship. You want to continue the relationship. You want to give them something that they want. So it's more goal-based rather than cash-based. 
Then other company, I, I was part of the acquisition strategy. Well, so. Take me through that a little bit more. Like what, what would have been a better outcome from that? More, what would have been a better goal-based outcome? So a goal-based outcome was today I have an Android phone and we use your phone and we pay you $10 a month, for example, $20 a month, $30 a month. Now, the thing is, there is no defensibility here. So what happens is a new company can come in, right? Instead of Disco or Fisco can come in, right? And they will say, I'll pay you $35. And suddenly all the loyalty that we built is all gone out of the window. So what we said is when you sign up, we will give you an entire platform of what you want out of us. So you want a free Netflix? Great. We will work your phone so that you get free Netflix. And we will provide you those Netflix details. You want a free Amazon Prime? You have enough money and you want to just put, uh, you want us to plant a tree on your name? We will do that too. You love going to Starbucks? We'll give you a gift card. Whatever you want. And what was great about this is it's regional. We actually can speak about it regionally. So we can target services in India that Indians care about. We can target services in America that Americans care about. And same thing with goes to Europe and other parts of the world, right? So rather than building of this thing, we basically make it like, I love Netflix, but I don't want to pay for it. Can I get it for free? Yes, of course you can. You know, we can work out your phone. Oh, you actually have three Android phones at home. You can get a Netflix, you can get a Hulu, and you can also get a YouTube music. So the thing is, we keep on building the relationship. And that means that their goals can change every month. And we we adapt your, our services based on your goals. I like that. Um, yeah, so that's one of the things. The other company I was involved in was Whisk, which is a food AI platform out of UK. I was part of the acquisition strategy as well as uh, working out um, what happens, what the roadmap is, and a few other projects like video communication and multi-device experience and all that. Awesome. So you really love the time at Samsung, right? What, what yeah, do you think I really you, did, you know, different from the past companies? Like what, what made you love it so much? I think it's the culture. So one of the things I really liked about it is I would say that, uh, and I'm not trying to say this in a very, I, I want to be careful about how I say it because I think at some of these financial institutions, it still feels like there is a whole pyramid structure, right? It, it's like trickling down the information, the strategy and all that. Here, the thing is, I was two tables away from my senior vice president who used to work with us, who used to chill with us. We used to go out for lunch and he was one of the most creative people I've met in my life in terms of this industry. And, and it just felt like it's working with a friend. Like he'll just say, I'll be like, I want to share some idea. And he's like, let's go out for a coffee and we can walk and talk. But that's not possible in some of these um, big financial institutions because, you know, you the, the layer of it is very different, right? They don't have time for anything. And, and the thing is, I think Samsung was looking for some of the outstanding ideas and it made everyone really pump up at some point that, you know, there is an opportunity here to do something different. Yeah, so that way it was great. Awesome. Well, let's talk about your book, you know, The Future of Extraordinary Design. What inspired the book? What do you talk about in it? Who should be reading in it? Absolutely. So I studied uh, service design, kind of human-centered design. And uh, coming in from advertising, one of my things has always been about, you know, in advertising, when you try and work out the big idea, you always want to question everything before you start thinking of a big idea to promote a brand or a service. And 
I just heard so much about human-centered design, human-centered design, human-centered design. And I was just like, I don't know, something about it feels really odd, right? Because the thing is, putting users first is not an answer to everything, right? And and the thing is, all the problems in the world today are because we've always put ourselves at the center of the story. That's why we might feel great, but environment is not doing well. Animals are not doing well. Oceans are rising, X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. We all know what the whole story is. And at some point we're like, if we are the one designing the service, shouldn't we put ourselves at the end of the chain rather than at the, you know, end of the circle rather than right at the center of the circle? You know, it's like a family where father says, I'm going to be the first one to eat. And then the family comes. You always want rest of them. We are the, we're considered to be the most clever race in the world. Shouldn't we behave like one, you know, by not putting, not just thinking about ourselves, because there is a human nature that even if we design the service for someone else, we will end up thinking about ourselves. So the whole book then kind of became about questioning the industry norms, just because, I mean, it's great to learn it, but at some point you want to start questioning some of those industry norms, right? You want to, I mean, I think every great thought has always been about challenging something that you believe is like rooted in, you know, it's like written on stone. The idea was like, why standardization? Why human-centered design and why politics and all are so rooted that we've never thought of a change in that. So the book is more theory. I know I, I got a lot of questions that are you going to build some kind of framework for us to think? I was like, no, frankly, no, because I'm not here to, I'm here to make you think, you know, coming in from advertising, I'm not a big fan of this culture of everybody trying to build some kind of framework, you know, to sell something. But this is not a framework. This is in theory how we can think a little differently. The three main topics, as I said, are standardization, the rise of standardization beyond human-centered design, and designers as politicians. Awesome. So who should be reading it? I think uh, everyone. I, I don't believe, I mean, people in the industry may connect with it better. Uh, students, I would love for students to read this purely because I think it gives them an idea that it's not just every time just saying that um, building a human-centered design doesn't mean anything, right? I mean, yes, you've defined the user, you're putting them in the center, but what happens to the rest of it? And I have some great examples of why it doesn't work and why it works. So, Yeah, take us through those. Take us through examples of what works and what doesn't. Absolutely. So I think I'll start with standardization. It's one of my favorite topics. So why did standardization become so much at the core of design? And the fact is back in the 70s, 60s, 70s, when America and Europe were growing, like they wanted to grow internationally, right? They wanted to be in every corner of the world. So they designed their processes to make expansion easy and more importantly, fast. So design once replicated a million times and just like a housing development or a fast food chain would be. And what happened is um, we saw companies like McDonald's, Uber, Starbucks, they're all spanning the globe because, you know, thanks to standardization. But today, trends are quickly changing. People no longer want big brands or giant corporations to decide and deliver. They want local. They want handmade. They want artisan. They want unique. They want their cultures reflected in their choices. And unfortunately, none of these brands are able to do that. 
right? Because they're just so big, they're too big to kind of do even a small change. And I do believe that McDonald's is kind of a perfect example of what standardization is. No matter which McDonald's you go in the world, they just make you feel like you're back at the McDonald's in your local neighborhood, right? If you swap any of the two McDonald's, one in London and one in New York, there's no difference because it all feels the same. Yeah, some of them are a little more modern, some of them are not. And to me, the problem is that they've seen the world through one lens, right? They've forgotten what cultures are. They've forgotten the what the neighborhood design is, what languages they speak. And at times, they've also forgotten the sensitivity that goes behind every culture and some kind of foods, right? When it comes to some of the religious stuff around the world. So unfortunately, I think that's the model. And today we are making the same mistake with digital design. Uber wants to take one app designed in one corner of San Francisco and spread it around the world. And today, one of the things that we often hear about Uber is they've not created any sort of community. They've not created any sort of empathy because they are selling an app to the world that a lot of individuals don't connect to. Like they've not thought what happens when a small a tuk-tuk auto driver or, or, you know, users in Thailand or in India, right? Or when, when a car driver who doesn't speak English and has to use it, but he doesn't know interface, like they've kind of slapped this one design model to everyone. And in some ways it did not work. And what really worked, and so I will come back to some of the great examples, two of my favorites actually, which is look at Apple stores around the world. And even if someone just types in on Google Images, Apple stores around the world, every Apple store is different. It's not different because they want it to be, because what Apple did is they made their stores unique to their communities. And I always believe one thing that good design is always dynamic, contextual, and relative. So Apple hires local people to fit the storefront with local architecture. They choose the colors based on cultural tradition. And if you swap out any buildings around the world, they will not fit. And I'll just take the example of two of them, the Brooklyn one and the Apple store in Dubai. Like the Brooklyn one, when I went first time, I was like fascinated. It's a completely brown building. Apple did not build that building. They actually bought an old factory. And one of the stories that while researching on the book I heard was that when they tried to put the illuminated logo outside this brick building, it did not well go well with in that neighborhood. Nobody complained, but it just they felt like it's a little bit out of place. They removed it and they just put a steel cutout. So actually, if you walk by, you don't even realize that there's an Apple store out there. It doesn't have this giant thing. And same with Dubai. They actually worked with architects who were looking at uh, Arabic design back in 2000 years back. And that's why it's designed in such a way that if the weather is really hot, all the windows open up automatically. It's beautifully designed. It's nothing like an Apple store anywhere in the world. It's unique to that community. It's in fact become an an attraction for people to go. And another great example is a Tesla car, right? So one of the things that I think a lot of old car companies missed out in, they built an American car, then they shipped it around the world, right? So one of the signs behind the cars is that In America, whether you are an everyday person or whether you're a billionaire, most of the people tend to drive the cars themselves. It's a culture here, right? People kind of believe, yes, they may have drivers, but most of the time they drive the car themselves. So the ratio of the car is always 60% in the driver's seat and 40% is left for the passenger seat. I'm talking about sedan cars. 
And that's why no matter, even if you sit in the biggest, roomiest sedan car, it's not comfortable sitting behind if a person is 6'2", 6'3". And when we look at Asia, it's a little different, right? Labor is cheaper. There are more people ready to work. So there, everybody has a driver. And especially people who are driving Tesla, they have a driver. So when Tesla decided to go into the China, uh, Chinese market, they changed the proportion of the car. They made 40% for the driver and 60% for the backseat. So that is thinking unstandardized, right? They did not say just because we're an American company, it's going to work. They have to adapt to the uh, Amer- uh, sorry, local tradition and cultures. I didn't realize that about Tesla. That's interesting. Yeah, so that's one of the great things I love. And I think my last favorite example is there's a restaurant in New York called Enotica Maria. It is a fascinating concept. What they do is they hire a new head chef every week. And that new head chef is not some culinary artist or Michelin star. It's a grandmother from that neighborhood, a local grandmother who just who doesn't even have to. They just put in their names and they just need to, you know, obviously all grandmothers I expect would know how to cook. And they all from different cultures. So one week it could be Mexican, one week it could be American, one week it could be Chinese, one week could be Japanese. And they work with that local stuff to create food, to design the food as if they're cooking for their grandson or their children. So every week you have a new menu. And every week it's like, oh, who's it? Oh, it's this one. It's someone from, you know, another culture, someone from... XYZ from Dubai, someone from Europe, someone from UK. And it just becomes such a fascination now. And I just think that it it promotes local culture. It promotes unstandardized design. So that just to me is unique. And that's how I think companies have to start thinking. They don't have to think brand first. They should think culture first. I like that. Now, you know, let's, let's talk about some of the practical advice, right? You know, we talked about you know, redesigning customer journeys, like when you're talking about Delta and others, what advice would you give to design and product teams that are looking at redesigning that customer journey? So designing customer journey is fascinating. It can be hard. It can be easy. I just, um, one of the advice I'll always give is try to understand every perspective out there. It's not just about understanding one perspective. It's not about just understanding your customer's perspective. But there are two main concepts I always believe, and I'm just going to pull it up quickly. And I always say one thing, which is internal before external. There is a lot of leeway you can get by understanding your own employees. We focus so much on chase employees, people who are, you know, internal teams who are like comprised of like 20 years experience, 30 years experience. They can tell you so much about the brand. They can tell you problems that they see through the lens of the customer. So always go internal before external, right? Always try to find people who are part of this product or a service that you're working on for years. They must have seen the entire thing, right? You always want to ask your grandparents how they've seen the world. They can tell you so much more than some blog you read, right? So it's the same thing. There's so much more that internal can do before you go external. And the other thing is, two things I'll often tell designers is intention is everything. So what is the intent of doing it? I think today when I hear words like design sprint and all that, I was like, sounds great. But how many of those design sprints actually make it to real life? 
it's not just about parsing out ideas as much as you want but it's about carefully crafting one idea that you know is going to make it so find the intention is your intention just trying to find what the problems are then concentrate on that but try to see what business people most of the designers i think we as a community feel is we think so much we live so much in our ideas or oh, this one is amazing imagine this experience but there's a reason why they're not doing it right because it's just probably not practical or it's just going to cost too much but find out what is possible like try to make it real like intention like find out the intention from some of the product owners and managing directors like what do you want the customer journey for what are you going to do like are you going to just share it as a great work within the team or are you trying to dissect and understand the micro problems people are going through so find that great intention and also other thing i always tell people when they're building customer journey is business people are always right in terms of finding some business value to it everything comes at a dollar amount even when i say that i want to do this little change it's going to cost a company millions of dollars so give them a reason why they need to spend millions of dollars and how it will get them that next billion dollar you know so there's a reason to like give them like i worked on a uh, at chase and samsung when we were working i would not start for weeks or months before i know the exact thing because I don't want a great customer journey just floating around an email and then putting a hard stop to it and disappeared you know did great work thank you so much there's nothing we can do about it versus I'll just give you this one thing and I'll give you so much into it that you will see a value in starting somewhere so I think it's about understanding that business value to it yeah and that being part of this whole digital transformation right mm-hmm. so what else would you tell people especially places like some of these older or more traditional more mature industries like finance they're all going through digital transformations you know any additional advice for them i think um, my boss uh, the manager i work with at shoab uh, her name is alicia and she said uh, when we were talking about it she actually put this she's like let's put a business need for every problem out there you know when you start putting a business need for every like we all know that there are some uh, problems that we all can see and you know people who actually discover some of these problems and i'm like you think they don't know people like people on top don't know these problems they know this right it's not like you've discovered a problem that nobody in the world knew about right but the thing is the answer is what can you do with the problem right how creatively and easy to execute you can make it right so that the company see value like we all knew the problem with hospitality right we all knew the problem that taking a taxi is such a painful thing uber came out with a creative model to solve it right so anyone can see a problem but it's how you connect the dots and sometimes i think the fact of the matter is we sometimes try to look at ideas which are so complex that we forget the most simplest ideas So I think some of the finest ideas in the world are the simplest one. I'll give you in best uh, one of my favorite examples is Samsung Frame, right? It's a product that I completely adore and for people who haven't heard so much because it's not advertised as much, but it's a TV with a frame that you actually get a wooden frame and you can select the frame and when you actually put the TV in, you can actually see a painting in it, right? Such a simple idea and and the thing is you can buy it you know buy hooks to get it stuck on the wall or you can buy a nice little like a painting easel to kind of put it on there now the thing is the problem is no matter which house you go to you always see this black box right you always see this 
ugly black box everywhere that nobody wants to see, you know, black or whatever color your TV is. But you just, back in the day, I remember we used to have a gray box. It was just ugly. Like it just, nobody wants to see it, right? It just, and then Samsung said, okay, we can't do anything about it, but we can give you a beautiful thing. And then we will get artists around the world to start creating this new paintings. And it's just like, wow, you know, like I have one at home. And I'm just like, every time I look at it or people look at it, they're like, is this a TV or is this a frame? I was like, it's a bit of both, you know? <laughs> and and it's just, now we put our own paintings. You can actually support new artists by buying paintings. I think they did not just look at a problem. They looked at a solution that was so easy to execute for the size of Samsung. Wooden frames and just a beautiful software that does things. And that's what I mean. Like, Try to find an intent is everything. Try to find that intent because at the end of the day, people look at the intent of what you're trying to do. If you're trying to just do a cool project, the intent is different. You're trying to build your own portfolio and no company is okay with that because they will let you build your portfolio, but you're not going to see anything value after that. Like intent should be, I want to do something that people remember. It should be simple and it should be doable. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I, I am a big fan of the Samsung Frame product. It's a really great product. It's, it's a brilliant idea. I thought it's it's like one of the coolest ideas I've seen in the tech world. They actually took technology and then not make it look like technology. That's what I loved about it. Yeah. You know, otherwise, gadgets try so hard to make it look like gadgets, right? Yeah, no, I, it's it's a beautiful product. I, if anyone in the market for a TV, quote-unquote, should check it out because yeah, uh, you should definitely there's added value to it in a lot of different ways. Now, a lot of what we talked about is a lot of product and design together. And we're seeing that in organizations where product and design might work together in the same part of an organization reporting, you know, to a CPO. Other times there's a chief design officer, but we do see a lot of product management and design working hand in hand more so than ever, which brings the question too of like, how can they work together better? Do you have any advice for that? So I think um, this uh, completely depends on the company, but one of the things that I have experienced is I think product and designers need to be at the same power to work together. Sometimes I think designers feel like they are more like trying to execute, trying to be more like a production thing. If a company and the product people treat designers as you know, get this done for me, then there's nothing going to happen ever because there's not going to be any good KPIs out there. It's like I always put this metaphor of uh, not American football, but I'm more of a soccer fan. So I'm always like, you can't just throw the ball and tell them I need a goal in the next two hours. You know, it doesn't work like that. There has to be a strategy. Who do you pass? When you pass? What is the strategy? You have to understand the opponent players and things like that. So I think in some ways, if they work together, Definitely. And again, like what it's not about which side is more powerful, but it's about what they want to do. And I think for designers also, one of the problems I see with designers is we live too much in the design world, you know, try to understand a little bit of business side to things because it will help you have a better conversation. Awesome. Well, as we're kind of getting to the end of this, I wanted to first talk to you about, you know, what you see in the future. What do you see in the upcoming trends in design and product? I personally, I think I see a lot of uh, carefully crafted design, a lot of empathy. I do see, um, I'm not a big fan of technology for the sake of technology. So I do see a lot of technology that will be used in the background, a lot of technology that is hidden, like Amazon Go, where experience is everything more than the technology. 
I think design will be at the forefront. And yeah, I just see some great ideas out there and people just have to realize that every industry is out there to change at this point. You know, every industry, especially finance and pharmaceutical industry or finance and medical industry are going through a healthcare, sorry, are going through a huge change, right? And I see that, I mean, everybody should start thinking of ideas and how to make sense for it for the user and try to include everyone in the ecosystem and not just a few, you know, that's one of my things, like try to include everyone. Because if, you, if you're not going to give something back to the environment in some way or not going to think about it, we're not going to have a great future. I like that. I, I think there's a lot to be said, you know, about how we design and build products that they need to be inclusive, right? That we're Absolutely. designing problems for or designing products for, you know, more than just people who look and act like us ourselves, right? And that we take that into account both in how we build our our teams to build the products and design the products themselves, and also how you know we do the research and discovery and and creating the the products that fulfill or solve the customer problem or fill the need. I think there's there's a lot to be done there, and I, I think you know a lot of that is. Uh, something we should be thinking about, especially in lieu of, you know, the, the world as it is today. Mm-hmm. I think um, one of the examples I've spoken about in my book, it's called Zootopia. So, you know, I'm not a big fan of zoos, never been to one. So I'm, I'm a huge animal rights activist. And I always felt like zoos were started with the wrong notion. We always felt like we needed zoos because we are trying to save endangered species and we're trying to expose our children to the wonders of the nature that's not the case. We've just trapped animals because we want to enjoy them, right? And I think what I see design in the future is Zootopia. Zootopia is this uh, Danish zoo concept, which is, if you type it in, you'll be able to see it, but it's this beautiful forest that they're trying to create. And they're trying to create this dome where humans will be able to see the animals. So what I love about it is they spun the story, right? They did not think of human-centered design, but they thought of it as more like subject matter design, right? The animals are the center of the story here, not humans. So you want to see them, but they don't want to see you, right? So I think future of design is superb because I think there will be, there's so many things that designers can be thinking about. One of the things, other things I talk about in my book is design delivers feelings, not products, right? So many times, like if I know that tomorrow morning I'm flying to Finland for a holiday, my walk is going to be different today. The way I talk is going to be different, you know, because in my mind, I'm already there. Or even when people, when they go to Starbucks and picking up a coffee, they're already energized by the thought they're going to Starbucks, right? So it's all—it's that feeling that you can create. Yeah, the, I mean, the emotions you generate are going to have more of an impact on your users. Exactly. So I think companies can start, and a lot of companies have already thought of it, but when we think of branch of the future, we think about music, we think about the smell, we think about so many things in it. Like you want to take them to a different virtual world. And that's what happens with so many of these brands. When I go to Umqua or even Apple is so great at it. Like every time I walk in, they actually pop up on my screen saying that, oh, you have a $50 gift card. Would you like to buy something today? And it's just like, wow, they made me remember when most of the times you're like, oh shit, I had a gift card. I forgot to use it. So it's like that feeling that they create, you know, they, they try and reduce your anxiety at every point, which to me is like designers have so much to think about. We can get so much into it till now. We were not part of the story, but today we are part of it. And one thing I always say, one last thing I'll say about companies is 
you asked me about product management and designers working together. I think at Chase, they did a brilliant thing when they did not see a proper collaboration. They actually put in this whole concept of design first. So design first means no matter what you're trying to solve, no matter what the thing is, designers have to be day one on the table. They have to be part of any conversation you're having. And if they are not part of that conversation, they should not be part of that conversation or part of that project right till the end. So that brought a lot of things. Like that's why at the start when we were working on mortgage and all, we were there on day one because that completely changes the thing versus designers most of the time are brought in at the eighth hour. You know, we need quickly these designs. This is what we came up with. And that shouldn't be the story. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm a big believer in design being involved early in the process and then throughout the process. Mm-hmm. Well, a couple final questions for you as we're yep. kind of wrapping up this hour. You know, what's your favorite product? I'm, I'm kind of getting a little bit over technology at this point. I think there's just way too much technology. But I adore few companies in the world who are trying to do something really simple. It's not always trying to create the biggest and the best. I think some of the companies are really admire is Basecamp is one of them. I admire Basecamp because they've created a product and they've stuck to that and they've kept their user base. They always said that they're not looking to grow. They're looking to just square off, like be there. And that's something I love as a philosophy. I, I love Apple as a company. There are things that I don't like certainly about them, everything, but I do love them as a company. I think they really think out of the box. Like every time I think of a solution, I think they really do wonders in small interactions that they do. So yeah, there are lots of other companies. Can't think of any right now, but there are there are like these. I, I love companies uh, which are thinking in terms of um, not, so I forgot the name. I'm so sorry. I can send it to you later, but there's a company who's creating leather, but not using animal skin. They're actually using the DNA of the cow, this thing, but they're never going to use the leather. I forgot it's a very big company. And then I love companies like Impossible Foods and all, because that is really the next level of innovation. You want to be empathy, but you also want to give people the taste that they're going to miss. It's a great way to say the story. So, yeah. So, Nick, one final question for you today. Three words to describe yourself. A childish prankster and innovative. Awesome. Well, thank you. This was a blast. Thank you so much. Uh, You have a great day.